Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast ready to take any reason into account to overthrow capitalism, including having better sex. Today we have Laura, Kellen, Zoe, Ambria, and drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, <laughs> Lindsay. Yeah, we are really excited to have back. Lindsay back with us. Um, she was, uh, you know, we're reviewing a book today. She was given the book before she had to take a step back, and so glad she's able to join us today, taking a break from law school for a hot minute. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I, honestly, I needed the break. So <laughs> yes. And I'm really, really glad that I had an excuse to read a book that wasn't for school. That was a, (laughs) yeah, that was nice. Absolutely. Would be cool if you had to read this book in school though. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yes. I recommended it to my family law professor actually. Amazing. (laughs) So we have this amazing opportunity to speak with the incredible author and scholar Kristen Godsey about her forthcoming book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really, really a pleasure to talk to you guys. Yay. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, um, and I'm going to read partially from her bio here, but Kristen Godsey is an award-winning author and ethnographer who has spent the last 30 years studying the lived experiences of socialism and post-socialism in Eastern Europe. She has written several books on everyday life and the social, political, and economic upheavals following the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. She has a PhD from UC Berkeley and is generally filled with accolades. (laughs) We could probably spend a lot of time talking about how amazing you are, but also we wanted to dive in and talk about your forthcoming book. Sounds wonderful. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But everyone should check out her website. She has a lot of more information there as well um, about herself and about her research. Um, So, but before we dive into the meat of your new work, I wanted to alert our listeners to your caveat that you wrote right in your author's note about this book referring to mostly cisgendered women um, because of the historical context that you're speaking about. And as you put it, these historical contexts don't consider the unique needs of trans women. And you go into how this isn't a way to exclude trans women from the current discussion. But I think it's important to clarify that the term women um, in the context of your book, like up front, particularly when we're digging into the historical material. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I really felt strongly that I wanted to include that language in the author's note because, you know, we're talking about, you know, 19th and 20th, early 20th century socialist feminists who really only talked about the needs of cisgendered women um, and, you know, very, very specifically around things like motherhood. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the intention here is not to exclude anyone. I want it to be very inclusive. Um, but it, the historical context of the 19th and 20th century in Europe are such that um, primarily we're focusing on um, cisgendered women. I also um, was thinking about while reading this book, like this book actually made me think about how, um, and this comes up for me a lot when I'm reading about the centrality of feminism to socialist, um, socialism, um, about how hard it is to escape that discussion of heteronormativity when we do anti-capitalist theorizing because of how inherent gender roles and gender conformity is to capitalist economy. Hmm. Um, 
you know, I do think in general, our socialist books could go more into how this directly funnels into homophobia and trans misogyny, like how related those things are. But in general, I have to say I'm really amazed with the ground covered in why women have better sex under socialism. Um, and I also will probably later say more about my initial misgivings about the title and how Kristen Goatsey talked to me right out of those doubts. <laughs> like good. pretty quickly. <laughs> You know, I had doubts about the title too. So <laughs> I, I really did. I, I was hoping to for it to be something different, actually. Um, and it was uh, it was something that I, you know, many discussions between me and and the editor and the marketing people at Nation. Um, they really wanted this title, um, and so it was. You know, I. I I think a lot of people have misgivings about the title because it is so clickbaity, um, and you know. So, so I'm I am very uh, heartened to hear that you were you 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 came around to the idea <laughs> of the title. <laughs> Can I ask what you might have called it otherwise? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm an academic, and so I'm boring. I mean, it would have it might have just been something like you know, <laughs> uh, sex under socialism or women, sex and socialism, or you know, just sort of keyword type things. I, I sure. that was part of the problem is that I couldn't come up with something good, <laughs> um, <laughs> something catchy, right? And mm. um, and people, you know, when you do a book, you know, for a, a, a trade book, you know, you have a lot less. Control over um, things like the cover and and the title, and uh, you you know you have a lot of control about the content, but you don't have a whole lot of control over the cover and the title. And so, I was you know I was a little bit disheartened. I mean you know because you kind of these are the things that you have decisions you have to make, compromises you have to make if you're going to write for a, a more general audience. And this is my first book really um, speaking to a more general audience. I'm I'm really you know pretty garden variety academic, um, but I also you know, I did ultimately sort of come around to it because, you know, there are two chapters in the book that really do deal with sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of truth in advertising there. But also, I think um, it, it was either one of the one of the trade reviews in either Publishers Weekly or Kirkus Reviews, one of them, you know, they say, look, OK, the, the title is the literary equivalent of clickbait. But the <laughs> book is hard, you know, chock full of hard hitting facts. And I think that in some ways that you know the people at nation knew what they were doing Pe yeah. some people will pick up this book and maybe expect it to be a lot fluffier than it is because i'm not so sure it's as fluffy as the title makes it sound <laughs> i think the subtitle helps a lot with that too though it's and other arguments for economic independence so it's you know people don't get into it thinking it's just going to be about sex i think you like clarify that pretty well on the cover so <laughs> yeah and I really liked the subtitle that was my you know I really pushed for that subtitle because I wanted it to be like oh yes and other arguments <laughs> yeah it's not just about sex yeah can yeah. I just say that um I'm I'm a history grad student um PhD candidate right now and I went to a talk um a couple of years ago that was um a publisher for a trade press coming to talk about how to like pitch books to them. And his final thing was like, but don't worry, like if you're interesting, I'm sure it'll work out. And I raised my hand and was like, what if you're not interesting? And <laughs> everybody took it as like, a, oh my gosh, Kellen is, is, she's worried that like she's boring. And I was like, no, I'm not worried about it. I'm comfortable with it. But like, I just really like boring books and I don't know that I could ever do this. And so it's really, really comforting to hear like an academic that I really respect who's written such like amazing and like hard hitting stuff be like, yeah, 
I like did a little pivot, like to be a little bit more public facing. And I still had the same kind of arguments, but then I also, you're not saying this part, but I'm saying this part came out with this like kick-ass book. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Although I appreciate a good blank, blank and blank book. I think um, in the end, uh, the title might be more fitting uh, than I expected and maybe even you expected. Yeah, I do think it was, you know, one of the things that um, I like about the title is is it sort of channels a kind of self-help, um, like, you know, this this genre of like, you know, or like, you know, like resist capitalism with one easy trick, this one, <laughs> you know, simple trick or something, you know, it has that kind of clickbaity thing to it, right? Um, but the book is really, it's really a, it's a critique of self-help in some ways. It's like, no, mm -hmm. the, the problem is not with you. The problem is with the system. Yes. Um, and so I think that in some ways I saw it's a reverse self-help. It's like the opposite of, of, of self-help. It's like, no, like, look, you know, your, your personal reality is, 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 is structured by these larger political and economic things. And so in some ways I, I, it's sort of, it's playing a little bit with that genre of, you know, the Cosmo article or whatever, um, why women have better sex under socialism. Yeah. So I, you know, so I come around to it in, in that respect in that, like, I think people hopefully will get that it's a little bit ironic. It's a little bit cynical. It's a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as I say, you know, when you, when you, as I said before, when you make the decision to do something a little bit more public facing, you have to, you have to make some compromises and, and, you know, accept some things that, that, um, that you might, I mean, like certainly the, like the blank, blank and blank books. I've done a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit, um, because most of your work has been much more academic before this one. Why did you decide to make this type of book that could reach a larger audience? Like, what was that thought process like for you? Wow. So, you know, I think it was it was the political moment, right? Mm. Uh, the 2016 presidential election and just feeling really um, despairing about the world and the future. And I... You know, I, I'm a, a university professor. I've been teaching um, in the university for about 20 years. And so the thing about that is that I, I have a lot of former students, um, but my current crop of students are always between 18 and 22, right? Yeah. Um, and so I keep, get, I keep getting older. They stay the same age, <laughs> um, which is a little, you know, a little interesting from my perspective because I just, you know, every year I'm like, wow. Um, uh, you guys should be getting older, but you don't, they, they, they stay, they stay 18 to 22. And, you know, I, I feel like, I felt like there were some things that, um, that my, in this particular historical moment, the information and the research that I've done in Eastern Europe, um, was relevant to the, the particular political moment that we find ourselves in, in, in 2018. And so, so part of it was, you know, definitely a, a kind of a, a political motivation. I just felt like I, I have to, I have to say something. I, I, I can't just stay quiet anymore, you know, stay walled up in the ivory tower and just enjoy, you know, um, you know, swimming around in the Bulgarian archives or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, but the other thing I think was also that, um, you know, I, I was just really lucky. Um, nation reached out to me. I, 
they asked me to write this. Um, and so it, it kind of, in some ways, it was a, it was a gift uh, to be able to, to work with such a great editor um, and, and such a great publishing house. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, I was wondering if anything surprised you about your research as you were preparing to write the book. Yes. So uh, sexual economics theory, <laughs> that was, that was something that, um, you know, I ended up doing a lot of background reading uh, on this particular theory and it's kind of reverberations and various pockets of American academia, but then also how the conservatives have picked it up. Um, and there's this Austin Institute uh, for the family, I think a video it's got like a million and some views or whatever on YouTube called the economics of sex. And, and so what really surprised me, I think, was that this sexual economics theory um, is essentially describing what, you know, how sexual heterosexual sexual relationships work in capitalism. And uh, the irony of that, what really shocked me was that that's exactly what socialists in the you know 19th and 20th uh, centuries were saying about sexual relations under capitalism that's why they thought their system was better um, and here you have you know the, the original paper was published in 2004 here you have these um, psychologists basically admitting admitting I mean obviously they don't know that they're doing that but admitting that the socialists were right all along which I think <laughs> was that was really kind of funny yeah um, for me <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna. Um, I was planning on asking about uh, sexual economics theory because I've studied a lot of sex work activism, um, so I've read a lot about it as well. So something I found is that a lot of like prominent sex work activists considered it more empowering to get like the direct trade for money versus the indirect, like he'll buy you dinner first, um, right? Kind of interaction to boil the theory down very succinctly. Um, <laughs> but so I was wondering. Well, so. Oftentimes under capitalism, sexual power and sexual labor is one of few that is left available to women and especially women of color and trans women. Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering how you think socialism changes like the fundamental supply and demand chain for sex. Right. Well, so the, the you know, the, the thing about the theory, right, is what's really clear after the original paper was published in 2004 is that there was subsequent research that basically they tried to create. Um, you know, data points to support the initial theory. Because the, the original 2004 paper is just very theoretical. And they use some ex historical examples, but they don't actually have any data. So one of the things uh, that I thought was really interesting was that uh, a, a second paper that was published by Baumeister and Mendoza actually looked at some kind of international sex survey. And, um, and then they correlated that with uh, gender equality measure. And what they basically found is that in in societies where women are more equal, where there's greater levels of gender equality, then uh, there is like a, a lower age of first sexual encounter, there are more sexual partners. I mean, basically, essentially, sexuality gets decommodified. It becomes something that is you know, shared more widely outside of the market. But in societies where women have very little economic power or they have very little uh, political power or very little way of actually supporting themselves outside of marriage, then the price of sex, quote unquote, is very, very high. So, so women protect it. They, they, they protect sex as a commodity, which they then essentially trade for lifetime security in marriage. 
And so let a lot of these conservatives, you know, of course, they're making this argument that like, you know, birth control is like this horrible thing because it has lowered the price of sex and the hookup culture is terrible. It's, it's just, you know, that's why all of our young men are, you know, eating Domino's pizza and playing video games in their basements. They can't get a life because um, without an incentive, you know, to actually make money to get a wife or to get sex, access to sex, they have no incentive to do anything. This is sort of the basics of this theory. Um, and so I think what happens is um, the supply and demand. I mean, look, even under socialism, there sex work still existed, and and there's always. Um, I mean, sex work is pre-capitalist. We know that. Um, but what happens is that the supply and demand of sex changes because people aren't necessarily having sex to to meet their basic needs. Um, they're, they're, they're in, in societies with a much greater social safety net, in societies where women have more economic opportunities, or anybody. Uh, this could be trans women, people of color, anybody who has more economic opportunities, there's going to be a smaller group of sex workers um, because there are inevitably going to be people who go into sex work for primarily economic reasons and not necessarily um, you know, uh, as a choice. Like it, it, it becomes a labor choice that you do. So I do think that, um, that the, the economics of socialism changes the supply and demand for a particular type of sex work because um, there's going to be, uh, there's essentially going, I think, in some ways going to be less demand um, because people, and, and maybe even less supply. Hmm. Um, this made me realize actually, Kristen, when I was reading this, um, just like the, how when we commodify women's sexuality, um, women become self-repressed, not just because of sort of the domination of men, but because of the need um, to give our sex value. Exactly. And that also made me, yeah, it also made me think about why slut shaming works so well. I think, you know, it's like more than bullying or being mean or like casting women certain a certain way. Like it can actually devalue the commodity of a woman's sexuality. And if we sort of relegate a woman to a, and her sexuality to a certain sphere, she may not be able to use her sex in the same way um, that a woman um, we haven't categorized that way might be able to. Um, and it also really just brings me back to this idea about why the like, why women have better sex under socialism um, is like a worthy concept for thinking about um, how connected like that private sex life is Absolutely. to the overall economic system. Yeah, I mean, I say in the book, like, you know, classic sort of feminist thing is the personal is political, but I want to flip that on its head and say, hey, the political is personal, right? Like, what goes on in your bedroom is absolutely determined by these larger socioeconomic structures of society. And if you think that, like, your sex life is, is somehow just about you and like what you're doing right or wrong or whether you're relaxed enough or whatever. Um, that's, that's just such a, 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 a very limited way of thinking. It's so hyper individualized. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, look, if you're tired, if, if you're working three jobs, you know, if you're stressed out, um, because you don't have health insurance and you can't make rent, if you're, um, you know, if you're taking uh, anti-anxiety medication, I mean, there's all sorts of, because, you know, your life sucks for whatever reason, um, <laughs> there's all sorts of things that are going to impact the way that you relate to the people in your life, whoever they are. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's not only about sex, right? It's also about our relationships, our friendships, our relationships with our parents and our children. All of these relationships are, are things 
that take time and and demand uh, affective resources, what I call sort of affective resources in the book. Um, and those the the supply of those affective resources is deter is is in some ways determined by how much the rest of the world is draining you of those resources. And I think you know we're yeah. living in a late stage whatever capitalist moment where a lot of us are profoundly drained of our mm -hmm. affective resources. Yeah. That's, I think, so Ambria re-raised um, the title there, focusing on the why. Um, and I I had, I wanted to maybe bring something up, and I don't know how intentional this was, but um, you had a piece in the New York Times about a year ago, which you bring up again in the book. And the, the piece in the Times was called Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism, which is obviously close to, but subtly different from the title of your book, which is Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. And I, I may be reading too much into this, but I was wondering, you know, like, is that shift in tenses intentional? Um, because it feels like, and I, I think that a lot of us or many of us sort of were interested in getting into how you deal with either feeling like depressed or hopeful as you write these things. But what do you want us to get out of this question that isn't like, or out of this, this um, book that isn't past tense, you know, so to speak? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and I think that that this is where sort of my academic background um, sort of uh, influences the obviously the way that the book is written because I am somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about women's rights in Eastern Europe and the the um, under state socialism and the New mm -hmm. York Times column that you referred to was precisely uh, part of a, a discussion about let's look at the legacies of. 20th century state socialism, 100, you know, 100 years later after the Russian Revolution. That's what the, the, what the Red Century series in the New York Times was about. And so mm -hmm. I was trying to make this argument that there are these women's rights. There were these certain um, policies that were put into place that were based on these theories, socialist theories from the 19th century about the relationship between sex and marriage and uh, women's emancipation. They were put into place. They were tried. Um, and there were certain benefits of those policies, despite, you know, lots of uh, negative downsides of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. There were these, you know, sort of shining examples of certain policies that did work. And so I think that there are a couple of things that I want people to take from the book, but especially young women, because it's mm -hmm. the young women that I feel mm -hmm. like really need to take this torch forward. Mm -hmm. And the first thing is that, um, you know, Every time socialism or democratic socialism or, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or whatever um, is talking about implementing a, a vision of the future that is more, that includes socialist policies, whether they're Medicare for all or you know tuition-free public uh, college or trade school um, or even a postal bank, right? They get slammed with the horrors of Stalinism and the Gulag. That's always the argument. Like we're going to be Venezuela if if we go mm -hmm. down this like sing, you know the. <laughs> Uh, the the op-ed that Donald Trump Trump wrote in USA Today, right? That if we have single payer healthcare, we'll be Venezuela, um, uh, or you know uh, Bolsonaro, the, the Brazilian new Brazilian president. Like there were memes in Brazil uh, that against the left that were about the Holodomor, the famine in Ukraine, or Stalin's mm -hmm. purges, right? So mm -hmm. it's it becomes a, a cudgel that especially I think older Americans, especially baby boomers, wield mm -hmm. to bludgeon the heads of millennials who have a more positive idea of socialism. So so one of the things that I want to do in this book is to say, look, look, hey, you know what? Even state socialism in Eastern Europe wasn't as universally horrifying 
as we are being told that it is. Yes. Um, so that's like the first message. And I think that in some ways I was kind of uniquely poised to, to talk about women's rights and state socialism because that's what my research has been about for a really long time. Mm. So that's the other thing. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I really want people to get out of this book is that things can change. And they, and they did change in Eastern Europe really rapidly. I mean, it was like from one day to the next. Like there are people in East Germany who committed suicide on November 8th, 1989, the day before the Berlin Wall fell down because they thought that they would never leave, be able to leave Eastern Germany or they were being persecuted by the Stasi or whatever it was. If they had waited 24 hours, the entire world would have changed. Now, I remember... I, I traveled in Eastern Europe in the summer of 1990, immediately after the wall came down. I spent a lot of time studying this transition from socialism, state socialism to, ca to capitalism. And I can tell you that the world can turn on a dime. Mm. History is so contingent. And I think that millennials, especially because they came of age, um, you know, 9-11 uh, uh, you know, was usually middle school and um, uh, the Great Recession is, you know, high school, college, depending on where you are. And, but it's bleak, 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 bleak. It's been nothing mm -hmm. but bad for mm -hmm. a while, right? And I, and I really, you know, in the last chapter on citizenship, I have this Oxford cartographer's map that I like to use with my students to say, look, history changes all the time. It really changes all the time. And you cannot despair because if you despair, you let them win. It's, it's, it's Mark Fisher's idea of capitalist realism, right? That the place of despair and nihilism is is where they want you to be in order to perpetuate this system. And I really mm -hmm. I feel like that is a really important message, um, because there were all these great, amazing socialist women um, who did all these incredible things that you may not know about, but their choices and their actions did make a difference. And I think that's a really important message that people do have political power, um, and they need to they need to embrace it, no matter how awful and despairing and you know, it's just it, sometimes I, 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 you know, I open the new the newspaper or, you know, read the the news on my phone or whatever, and I just feel so overwhelmed by the negativity of the world today, and mm -hmm, I have yeah. to like stop myself and say, no, you cannot let them win, right? You've got to believe that change is possible because that in and of itself is a step towards political change. I want to quickly um, say that one of the things that your book really taps into so quickly is this nuance of, and I want to quote you directly here, where you say, acknowledging the bad does not negate the good. And mm -hmm. I think when we think about the Soviet Union um, or the Eastern Bloc and, and, and think about with the narrative is exactly how you describe is this um, unnuanced uh, horror uh, imagery that we get constantly. And I know Lindsay's going to ask uh, more about this in just a second, but I, yeah. I think that one of the best things that your book does in terms of setting up a framework is really being like, we need to recognize that that narrative is false and we need to recognize mm -hmm. that it doesn't mean that those bad things didn't happen, but that doesn't mean that that was the only thing that happened. Uh, yeah. And it, I wanted to also mention really quick, you talk about that map in the book and I, I had immediately put buy this map on my to-do <laughs> list um, because I'm currently um, a student teacher and I'll be teaching social studies in junior high. And I was like, I want to put that in my classroom. <laughs> yeah. So it's, cool. it's, 
It is the best map. I mean, I believe, unfortunately, it's out of print. So you have to find, you know, a, a used one somewhere. I don't know if they're still making it, which is really, really a shame. I believe the gift, though, is is on, um, you know, you can find a JPEG of the image. But, it, 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 you know, I use it with my students all the time because they get so despairing. Like, oh, you can't change anything. Like, you know, capitalism or neoliberalism is so pervasive. There's nothing I can do. There's this real sense of, like, you know, nothing will ever change. I mean, again, this comes back to this um, concept, Mark Fisher's concept of capitalist realism. Like, we just believe that this system has, is sort of, it expands in all temporal directions into the past, into the future. There's no way of ever getting out of this kind of uh, economic uh, framework that we're in. And yet, like, if you look at this map, <laughs> you can see that the world changes all the time. And, and mm -hmm. I believe in... Um, in that, um, I use I talk about the example of um, of the fall of, of communism, but I believe I actually in the book also talk about you know the date that is uh, the the last you know generally considered to be the last day of the Roman Empire, mm. right? Um, and you know, God, the Roman Empire had existed for a thousand years mm -hmm. <laughs> right and and then one day it just ended can you imagine being 23 when that happened <laughs> wow. um so i actually had a, a question which is i don't know kind of irrelevant now but it was basically um you know given that capitalism really really sucks for women and that you can't women can't <laughs> opt out of womanhood or capitalism like how do you avoid getting despondent and i you know i mean i think you answered that pretty clearly. Just, I mean, things change uh, and just knowing well, that, I, but sorry, go I ahead. Do, sorry. I do think that things change, but the, but you know, the other thing is I say in the book very directly, like reclaim your time and reclaim your self-worth. And I, I, you know, earlier we were talking about slut shaming and how women, um, you know, it, it's so powerful because it sort of devalues quote unquote, the woman, the, the value of a woman's sexuality on this open market of exchange. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing is that like, look, Think of, I mean, I think for those of us who think critically about these things, think of moments when you're not in the market, right? Like when you're asleep or when you're in the shower, or, you know, when you're lying in bed with your partner or whatever. Um, th there are ways in which, you know, you can really structure yourself and, and, and think about yourself not as a commodity. And this is just not, like I said, it's not just about your sexuality. It's also about your affective resources. You know, when I, you know, pay attention you know, undivided attention to my daughter, and we're just talking about something. Um, I am, um, you know, I'm not participating in the market, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm just, I'm just being a mom, and I, I'm just doing something because I really like my daughter, you know, and I want to hang out <laughs> with her. And so, you know, I do think there's a way. It's, it's not only about not giving into despair, but it is about. You know, obviously, we have to also really think about ways in which we can politically mobilize and, and be um, active to resist these structures that structure our lives um, so intimately um, and so pervasively. But, but there's also, there are these small things, right? Rather than thinking about self-care, which is like, oh, I'm going to just sit on my yoga mat and zen out because I can't deal with the news anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, think about, like, but it's not just about like I'm taking care of my inner self. It's that I'm removing myself from the market right now. I'm not participating in this system, you know, and the more people think of it that way, I think the stronger we, we, we start to see the ways in which 
capitalism influences and infiltrates our, our very, very, very intimate personal lives. And it, it's a consciousness that you kind of have to cultivate that I think really does over the long run start to make a difference in, pe in people's lives because they don't then blame everything bad on themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't have a job or, you know, because I didn't work hard enough or I, you know, I don't have a, a, a good partner because like I'm not worthy. You know, there's there's this terrible tendency to put all of the blame for everything on the individual, especially right. in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think that that it's really worth stepping back and saying this is not my fault. Yeah. Right. There are yeah. other things at work here, and I am, you know, I am not going to take the blame for a fundamentally unequal system, even if right now, me personally, I can't like rewrite the laws or remake the market, but I can at least acknowledge that this is not my fault. Mm -hmm. I have self-worth and value outside of the market, and that, I think, is a really, really revolutionary concept for a lot of people. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, so my other question, I know you mentioned a little while ago, uh, the Holodomor and the gulags and, you know, things like that. And, um, as a former tanky, I really appreciated this book's critiques of the Soviet Union from the left. Um, like while a lot of metrics indicated increased quality of life under the Soviet Union as compared to the periods before or after, um, it really dropped the ball when it came to liberating women, um, like Stalin's choice to outlaw abortion and reinforce the traditional family unit. Um, which are policies that are traditionally, you know, conservative. Absolutely. Um, and I saw, you know, that that led to increased workloads and decreased freedoms for women. Um, and that was in spite of the fact that a lot of really competent women were put in positions of power and came up with really great policy plans to combat those problems. Um, but I know you mentioned or you discussed in your book that, you know, the government just did nothing with those plans. So, my question is, um, going forward, do you have any suggestions about how we can avoid that kind of stagnation and actually get shit done going forward? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great uh, question. So, so the first thing that I do want to say is like, you know, the Soviet uh, Union in the, after the revolution in 1917 was an incredibly poor country. Um, a massive uh, peasant population, massive amounts of illiteracy. It had come out of World War One. Then it had a civil war. Then there was a, a horrific famine in 1921. And and while this was going on, Alexandra Kolontai and the, and the other, um, she was the Commissar of Social Welfare, and the other uh, women that she was working with, Krupskaya and Armand, um, in the Genotel, the women's section of the Communist Party, they were literally trying to reimagine the family. <laughs> they were mm -hmm. they were complete. They were doing things and and to socialize um, childcare and domestic work, housework essentially. It was a very ambitious uh, pr program that the Soviet Union couldn't even come close to affording. Right. Mm -hmm. And the social chaos that was created by these policies, uh, you know, the liberalization of divorce uh, and then trying to enforce some kind of alimony when men, you know, abandoned their wives and women and that the, there was an incredible number of homeless children. So in 1930, so there was a 1918 family code, a 1926 family code. And then in 1936, Stalin reversed everything. The Soviet Union also legalized abortion in 1920. Um, first trimester abortion. And and all of this, these policies had incredible social ramifications in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was an incredibly poor country. 
probably the worst place in the world to implement these ideas, right? Mm. So it's even, it's remarkable to even think that they tried from 1917 to 1936 when Stalin finally reversed everything and it went back to the sort of bourgeois nuclear family model. Um, so, so I do think that it's worth remembering that the we, the United States, uh, and certainly other West European countries, the, you know, we're a lot wealthier than the Soviet Union in 1917, right? And so some of this is also just about resources, and we have the resources. So the big thing is to really, to really um, create priorities. Um, but I also think, right, um, and and this is, you know, this is getting into kind of the, the nitty gritty of Soviet history, right? That there was this problem of, you know, the Bolsheviks versus what was called the, the workers' opposition, um, who were kind of what we would think of as sort of more left libertarian sort of slash anarchist type who really believed in a devolution of power. And, you know, I think the big problem uh, with the Soviet Union and the implementation of, of those ideas in that particular historical context was this tendency towards autocracy. I mean, again, the Soviet Union not only was poor, uh, sorry, Russia, the Russian Empire was poor before the Soviet Union, and, you know, many people are suffering a lot more after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but what we also see is that the one thing that has stayed fairly constant is this tendency towards autocracy. And so I do think that um, one of the things, you know, it, 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 to put it in your terms, if we want to get shit done, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sometimes, right, um, when we when we have our eye uh, on a goal, um, it can be much easier to do the things non-democratically, mm -hmm. right? To, to give up on really the sort of core principles, uh, which, you know, ultimately is, is what Lenin did. Many, you know, many of his own colleagues criticized him when he instituted the NEP. Um, and certainly the workers' opposition really felt that the power should be devolved to the Soviets and, and not so concentrated in the, in the, in the Bolshevik uh, leader. Um, and so I think that we have to, that, you know, always, sometimes we need to focus and we need to really push things forward. But what I think not at the expense of consensus, no matter how messy sometimes consensus is, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's the, that's always the tension, right? With, with, with left politics, because there's all, there is uh, sometimes, and many people argue, sometimes there is this tendency towards a much more kind of vanguard party type model. Um, and that's where I think, you know, the, the left libertarians, you know, the, their critique, the, the anarchist, so, you know, anarcho-syndicalist critique is valid, right? Is mm -hmm. that, that, that there's always going to be this tension and we need to have a check on too much concentration of power because then it does really fall down. Look, the reason that Stalin reversed these policies in 1936 was primarily because the Soviet Union didn't want to spend the resources and that women would do all the work in the home for free that the Soviet state didn't want to have to pay for. So it was, a, again, a resource question. And um, and so it was, ex yeah, exactly what you talked about, this double burden on women who had to get full-time employment and then all of the responsibility for childcare and housework on top of that. And this was a, you know, this was if there had been more uh, democratic structures within the Soviet Union at the time, women would have said no. This is a terrible idea, right? Mm. Um, but there wasn't. And but it is worth remembering, however, that after Stalin's death, uh, the 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 ban on abortion is reversed, mm. and there is a much more liberal discussion happening in the Soviet Union. And by 1981, the Soviets do get a pretty progressive maternity leave. Uh, uh, law, and they also spend a lot more money um, uh, 
uh, for childcare centers. And so, so again, it's also very important not to um, fix the history of the Soviet Union in one particular moment, which is always in the West, mm. Stalinism, mm. right? It, it, it was a lo much longer period of time. And, and also, if we look at Eastern Europe, I mean, the Soviet Union had almost nothing in common with Yugoslavia. I mean, Yugoslavia was a completely different thing. And, you know, GDR was very different from Poland, and Romania was very different from Bulgaria. And then if we go further afield and we look at policies in China or Vietnam or Cuba or Nicaragua or whatever, like, it's, it's, it's much more flexible. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, it is really important to, to keep in mind that if we want to get things done, we have to really critically assess the history of socialism in the 20th century and keep the good things and get rid of the bad things. And it's that simple. And we, but we can only do that if we're allowed to have a discussion about what was good and what was bad. In a similar vein, you know, you mentioned that no socialist experiment was ever allowed to flourish without facing the overt or covert opposition of the United States. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there, right? That still oh, yeah. exists like throughout <laughs> everything. And, and so I guess my question to you is, um, cause I think about this all the time. <laughs> Uh, is just like the U.S.'s stranglehold, um, particularly through a lot of um, these covert missions and things like that. Um, but so do you think, do you feel like the first successful take on this would be, with, be when the U.S. is not intervening? Or do you feel like the U.S., like it needs to come from the U.S. because the U.S. has played such a massive role in stopping this? Like, does it need to come from within? Or can it happen with without U.S. intervention? Like, how can we possibly subvert this um, hegemony, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really an interesting question. And again, we can look at history. Like during the Carter administration between 76 and 80, you know, Carter basically sort of let Nicaragua just do what it wanted to do, right? Um, because it was like peaceful, sort of peaceful coexistence idea. So there were moments in detente. There were moments in, in the history of the United States when they had a much more, you know, kind of friendly relationship or at least a hands-off relationship with some of these socialist countries. Um, obviously, after Reagan gets elected, that's completely off the table. Um, and you know, then there are periods like McCarthyism, right? But um, but there, but in in our own history, right? We have we do have a, a long history of socialist activism in the United States. And I think that um, you know, go back to Eugene Debs in, in the early part of the 20th century, and then uh, a colleague of mine, Eric McDuffie, has a beautiful book called Sojourning for Freedom, which is about um, African American women who really cut their teeth politically in the Communist Party of the USA. And, you know, they, some of them fought in the Spanish Civil War. Some of them end up going to the Soviet Union, and they have their first experience of being completely integrated with white people in the Soviet Union, and they come back really radicalized. And so I think that, um, I do think that it's a political choice in our leadership, right, to um, to intervene or not. And, we, and, and this has tacked back and forth. Um, unfortunately, I, I feel like we're we're getting ready for a, a big anti-communist wave these days. Um, just when you hear people talking, the you know conservatives talking about you know basically calling policies like you know single payer health health uh, single payer healthcare like you know inevitably the road to the gulag or whatever. Um, so I do think, but the other thing that I will say is I'm really encouraged by 
the attention that the primary uh, victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has gotten in Europe, like I do think that the United States also can play a role in inspiring other countries and in creating a coalition um, to to sort of fight the the worst excesses of unregulated neoliberal capitalism. And so, I mean, it, it's it, there's it's not an easy answer to that question um, because the policy of U.S. Uh, opposition to socialism has waxed and waned over the years. But I will say that it is absolutely true that no real experiment um, on, a, you know, on a national level with socialism was really allowed uh, to sort of run its own course without some sort of direct or indirect U.S. covert operation or military interference. And that's just a reality. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that being said, right, the United States has had, um, you know, you know, fairly left sort of policies, if you think back to the New Deal, for instance, right? I mean, it's not impossible. It's just, I guess, a question of whether whether you call that socialism or you call it social democracy or you call it progressivism. I mean, people have issues with some of the terms, right? So I do think it's worth thinking about, though, the, the, the moments in our history, like, for instance, you know, under the Carter administration, where there was a kind of hands-off approach and, um, and, you know, things were allowed to develop one way or the other. Um, shifting gears a little bit here, but in the beginning of your book, you talk uh, in the first section, you talk about brochalist, uh, which refers to leftists <laughs> who emphasize worker solidarity over race and gender. Yeah. Um, and I would say we definitely all know some of those and yes. uh, have, have talked about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so you mentioned how like feminists and brochures often get into arguments about the importance of identity politics. Um, also an argument that I've been in many times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you think, I guess, going forward and because we've seen a lack of intersectionality in past uh, socialist movements, what do you think is a good way to address that as we go forward, um, uh, kind of within leftist circles as that argument arises? Yeah. So, so I actually have a two-pronged answer to that question because um, on the one hand, I really want to argue, I have another book, a more academic book coming out in February, where I really, you know, try to argue that socialist feminists um, in the Eastern Bloc, along with their socialist feminist allies in socialist aligned countries in the global South, um, were really intersectional before we had a word for it. Um, because they always talked about race um, and gender in addition to class and class issues. Um, it was just like kind of the bread and butter of the socialist movement. Uh, I think that a lot of of, of bro what we call brochalists, right, are sort <laughs> of un unaware of the deep roots of women's emancipation as a sort of found and and um, and anti-colonial politics as well. If you think about Lenin's imperialism, that that are that, that are kind of foundational to the socialist movement. So like Engels, uh, you know, writing The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, and Bevel's book, Women and Socialism, and obviously Kolontai um, and her work, you know, again, in those first years of the Russian Revolution. So sometimes it's just an educational thing, right? Which is that people just don't realize that actually socialism is, is intersectional. In, 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 in one reading of its foundational documents is much more intersectional than, than it's, it's been interpreted as subsequently. Yeah. The second thing that I will say... Sorry, I was going to say, I just, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's hard to make people kind of like care and 
uh, further ideas that don't necessarily affect them, specifically in terms of like the brochalist, uh, you know, persona. Yes, I agree. Right. That they, but but a lot of times they just haven't, you know, they haven't read Zetkin, Clara Zetkin's work, or they haven't read Bebel. Um, and so they don't really understand the, the link between, you know, the family and, and private property and the state. And so sometimes it's, a, it's about education. But the other thing that I would say is in, contempt, in the contemporary political moment, look, the left, the history of the left, and we're going all the way back to the first international here, right, has always been riven with um, factionalism. Because, you know, there are lots of people who disagree. Um, and whether this is between, you know, sort of the communists and anarchists or, you know, people who want to do revolution or reform, uh, I think that the contemporary identity politics question is just yet another issue um, that divides the left. And that the left, because of its multi um, sort of uh, faceted, pluralistic nature is always going to be less ideologically coherent than, than a similar, you know, radical right-wing movement. That being said, the one thing that the left is really good at is coming together in times of opposition to something they hate. We have very, very, very good historical examples of that. And so I think that sometimes um, when we think about these broad coalitions of feminists and people of color and environmentalists and maybe you know, anarchists and communists and democratic socialists and social democrats and this, this sort of whole wide spectrum of people who are opposed to a particular political ideology or a particular president, that there's a beautiful moment in that, um, in that circumstance for coalition building and education. And I think that I try really hard at the end of the book to say, yes, we have to recognize each other's differences. We have to be respectful of intersectionality and intersectional identities. But we also need to find ways to link arms with each other and to stand up for the things that we believe in. And I think that, practically speaking, that's often a lot easier when you have something um, that you're opposed to collectively. Amazing. This has been so amazing. Um, we wanted to invite you to read a short passage from your book, um, just so people can have a little taste and also remind everyone when this book will be available um, as well. Yes, okay, so um, so first of all, the I believe the book is already out in the UK. Um, it's a slightly different version of the book, uh, which is available in the UK, but the US book will be out on November 20th. Um, that's the official pub date. Yeah. So, um, and I'm, was, I'm excited to, to, to say that there's also a, um, an audiobook version of it. Um, although I'm not the reader and I, I was going to ask being, that. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's the funny thing is it's actually, I think it's being read by a British woman. Um, so, <laughs> um, which is a little funny. Um, she, it's almost sounds like the queen is reading the book, but, um, Very it, cool. uh, but, but I'm happy that there's an audiobook version. So, because that means, you know, you could listen to it while you're on the treadmill or, or the elliptical trainer or whatever at the gym, um, or doing the dishes or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I, I listen to lots of podcasts and things and I like multitask. So, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, I'm so excited basically, about that. you can get this book if you're in the U.S. just in time to have a lot of great talking points for the Thanksgiving table. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yay. You can get it right, right. Uh, 
uh, yeah, for, for Thanksgiving. Um, and yeah, and it definitely, it's got a nice red and yellow cover. So <laughs> yeah, and it's got a lot of statistics that you can pull out against <laughs> enemies. That's right. That's right. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, it can be pro provocation for your, um, you know, your more conservative relatives around the dinner table it would be fun conversation. Yeah. yeah to have, yeah. I imagine. Um, so, okay, so I think I'm just going to read um, the, just the first um, page and a half or first two pages of the introduction, um, just because it's sort of hard to just dip in and read anything. So I figure I'll start at the beginning. Um, and this introduction is called You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. Uh, and I, sa I, so I, I start, the argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women, and if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work-family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you are dubious because you don't understand why capitalism is an, as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and get back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Maybe I'll just stop there. <laughs> Amazing. Ugh. Perfect intro to the book. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the, I hope that, uh, you know, it, it's written for a general audience. There, there are a lot of statistics, uh, but everything is footnoted. I have, uh, I think, a, I think a whole extra 10,000 words of this book is in the end notes. Um, and they're pretty, you know, they're pretty thick. So it, it, I'm hoping that people will kind of, I, I want to think of this book as sort of a gateway book, right? So if you read some of this stuff, um, then you, there are so many other wonderful books that you could read that are much more, you know, meaty. Um, and I put some of those in the further, further reading section. And then some of them are also listed in the, in the end notes. So I'm, I'm really hoping that people will critically engage with this question of how capitalism influences our our, you know, our self-worth and our value as people and how we can sort of reclaim some of that, some of that value and self-worth in a, in a, in a moment of, of increasing commodification of, of everything. Um, and I do want to mention that um, even if, um, even though this book is written for a broader audience, there's a lot to learn from it. For example, in the very beginning, I learned about how um, the American government, quote, sponsored an important study titled Women in the Soviet Economy, um, where, you know, the United States government was examining the way the Soviet Union actually made use of women um, as people who could contribute to, you know, their their overall economic system. Um, and I'm going to go on a little rant. I, you know, I'm sure it's already clear, but I strongly recommend this book. Um, it's extremely, extremely readable. I read it in a couple of sittings. But it's also nuanced and educational. And I don't know if I've ever seen a book swap less intellectualism out for accessibility. And I think this book is very on brand for Season of the Bitch in that way. It's clear, but it's not simple. And Goatsy uh, consistently sends the message that we're never really done learning. This book 
does a lot. You actually talk about race and intersectionality. You really draw out the inextricable connections between feminism and the socioeconomic order. And you also make the case for why the supposedly private experience, as we said before, of women's sexual satisfaction is related. Um, and you also talk about healthcare, just how much sense it makes to be optimistic for change. And you also offer some introduction to basic Marxist economics. Yeah, we were so yep. stoked to read this book. <laughs> yeah, everyone go read it. Hell yeah. yeah, I've already recommended it to several people. So <laughs> it's really, really good. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, it was, I have to say, for, for my first time writing something, you know, really non-academic. I mean, I think you can still feel the academic in me in the book, but I tried really hard to make it accessible. So it is really, really heartening to hear that, you know, you learned from it and that you also found it an easy, you know, an easy read. And it is also very short. Um, I, I really struggled with how, uh, I think I had 40,000 words, which is like nothing, you know, in, in academia that's like clear in your throat. <laughs> so, so, um, but I think that, you know, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to write short and, and but I, I like short books. So I decided that I should, I should write one. Yeah, absolutely. You did it successfully. Uh, coven stamp approval. <laughs> um, Thank you so much for joining us and taking some time out of your day to speak with us about this book. Um, and, you know, we really look forward to all the things you will continue to, to do in the future. And we'll keep an eye out for your more academic book in February as well. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really a pleasure to talk to you guys. Yeah, Thank thanks for you. Joining us. Thanks for joining us. So as always, you can get at us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Season of the Bee. Um, you can order some merch, seasonofthebee.com. If you know someone or if you are a person who is not a cis man who plays music, please send us um, a track or two uh, to seasonofthebee at gmail.com. We love hearing all your beautiful music. Um, Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Give us some money on Patreon. <laughs> we love it when you do that. <laughs> we love money. We love money. Um, Ambria, don't you think that it's weird that as a socialist you love money? <laughs> yes, and I love being weird. Yes. I uh, love money well, and being weird and being a socialist. Yes. I'm just so glad to be on this call with you all. Thanks so much, Lindsay, for joining us. Oh, it's so good to hear your voice. Thank you for having me back. I've missed you guys so much. Miss you so much. And I obviously love you all so love much. You. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. So much. Bitch.